0: phew that's new recording in progress okay
1: yes hey joe how's it going
0: yeah i'm good before we get on with the podcast today we're just going to make a couple of clarifications about the interview that's featured in the second half of this podcast
1: Okay, cool. I think it's worth noting that when we conduct our interviews for the podcast, our goal is always for them to be really relaxed, informal and natural.
0: Yeah, because we want listeners to experience the treat that we've had when we get to sit down or Zoom with all of these fascinating people and just have a chat.
1: That's it, just having a chat. But of course, when you're just having a chat with someone off the cuff, sometimes you say things that, that make sense in the context of that conversation, the conversation you're having, but might not make total sense in isolation when listened to afterwards.
0: Yes. So before listening to our interview with Dr.
1: Dieter de here are two things that you're going to need to remember in your mind. Here's the first thing to remember in your mind. So when Dieter says, I'm angry all of the time and I have to get up every day, he's actually quoting directly from Tom Tomorrow, pen name of editorial cartoonist Dan Perkins. So if you've not heard of Dan Perkins before, he has a weekly comic strip called The Modern World, which comments on current events and appears regularly in more than 80 newspapers across the United States and Canada. So
0: we'll put some links to that in the show notes. So the second clarification, and I think this is especially important, is at one point Dieter mentions that he likes to kidnap babies. And um, we we and he would like to make it absolutely clear this was a hypothetical example of something that would be unambiguously objectionable to say or do and not, repeat not, an autobiographical admission. Yes. No babies were kidnapped in the making of this show.
1: Absolutely, absolutely clear. Dieter Delcote does not kidnap babies. Is that everything? I think it is everything. Shall we play the show? Let's do that.
0: Do you ever wonder what is
1: the point? What's the point generally?
0: Yeah, a bit generally, but also more specifically. Like, is there any point to this podcast? Like if listeners go away and have a little think and reflect on satire and maybe come across some things they hadn't heard of and maybe give us a yell is there actually any point in that like what difference does it
1: make well those are those are good things aren't they
0: yeah but they're not going to they're not going to stop climate change or end the pandemic or make it sunny again or i don't know they're not going to stop boris johnson's eternal rain or this may's eternal rain or feed the hungry they're not going to end injustice are they
1: well, they they might.
0: Well, it definitely won't. And um, let's chat about that
1: today. Hello there, Joe. You seem to be in an uncharacteristically glum mood. What's the matter?
0: Well, it's not uncharacteristic, is it? But also two things. These are uncharacteristically glum times and also that was a setup in the character of Podcast Joe for our discussion on satire and how it might or might not offer some kind of balm in troubled times. A balm? A balm, yes, a balm, a balm like a lip balm, but a better balm, a balm for your mind and a balm for your soul if you think you've got one. A good balm, not a balm like the rubbish Vaseline lip balms, but like a really good lip balm, like the nice Nivea macadamia one that they've discontinued like a balm.
1: Okay, okay. so let's talk about that balm and what that balm might need to be soothing right now in this moment. But first, before we talk about what that balm needs to soothe, Who are you and what are we doing?
0: This is the podcast that is the podcast of Smith and Ward Talk About Satire, in which I, Joe War, a senior lecturer in 19th century literature, and you, Adam Smith, same, but for a different century, but I can't remember which one, talk about satire.
1: It's the 18th century.
0: It's not the 18th century. I fucking wish it was. I could just sell oranges all day or write satirical poetry while the meat burned on the jack.
1: (laughs) Because we all know what a jack is, yeah. We do
0: know what a jack is, don't we? Do you know what meat is? I do.
1: I do, and I I won't be giving it up anytime soon. So, stranded as we are in the early decades of the 20th century, on this podcast...
0: 21st century! (laughs) You olden days people don't don't even...
1: So I'll try that again. Stranded as we are in the early decades of the 21st century, on this podcast we're going to talk about the form, function, future and history of satire... And maybe you could write satirical poetry on your own time. What me? Yes. That's what you said, isn't it? Okay. You wish that you could eat oranges and write satirical poetry. Well you can do that. All as right. Much oh, as you okay.
0: Inked ravens of despair claw holes in the arse of the world's mind. Scrotal threats unhorse a question of flowers. I asked for answers and got a head full of heroin in return. When time fell wanking to the floor, they kicked his teeth.
1: So um okay which bit is the satire
0: none of it none of it was satire it was plagiarized from a fry and Laurie sketch
1: all right okay well could you write a satirical poem do you think
0: i don't know i don't know if i could write a satirical poem i've never really had a go at writing poetry i think i would i'd give it a go what about you could you write a satirical poetry a satirical poem
1: i feel like if i was going to write another poem um, it would, another poem? I did no, I did write a poem, um, well I've written in my life two published poems actually, one when I was 11 about dinosaurs and one when I was in my late 20s about space um, but um, yeah I feel like if I was going to write poetry having the having the objective of writing satire would probably help me to generate the words because you can do things with poetry can't you like juxtapose form and content in quite a straightforward way or I'm thinking it's interesting actually I was teaching some 18th century protest slash mildly historical poetry on a module recently and all of it was using the voice in interesting ways so you know having a poetic voice which is absurd and like making arguments which clearly the reader is supposed to recognize as as ridiculous and and amping them up to the point where they're laughably stupid that's, that's something I can imagine myself doing. Whether or not I would have the skill to do it or whether it would be good or wank is, is not for me to say.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think if I was going to write a satire, I'd write it in prose probably. I'm just more comfortable with that. Um, yeah, I don't know. Perhaps I should, perhaps I should try it.
1: Um, but why, why would you or indeed anybody else be sad right now or feel somehow disenfranchised and hopeless?
0: Oh, where to start? It's At the time of recording, it's cold and miserable with no end to that in sight. I don't know if that's because it's a cold May or if it's to do with climate change. It's like we know about seasonal affective disorder, but I feel like there's a kind of emotion when the season is doing something weird over a long period of time that leaves you just not feeling settled. And then, I don't know, like some days it's just kind of hard to believe we're ever going to get back to normal. And then you just see over and over again, liars and cheats, prospering and gaining power. The hypocritical and the criminal and the venal and the self-interested, the arrogant and the cruel, just get away with whatever they want. And the average person has no voice and no power and no real chance to change anything or be heard. Everything, everything just gets worse and worse. We're all afraid. Nothing really feels stable. Nobody with power can be trusted. I don't know, it's just like nothing's fair, everything's bad, and nothing seems like it's going to change.
1: So like political things?
0: Yeah, political things, yeah. And some things, I guess, that are a bit closer to home.
1: Oh yeah, like what?
0: Well, like John Lewis closed. That's really annoying. Um, and Nivea stopped making that lip balm.
1: The worst portrayal of all. But Joe, I have news. Satire can help with all of that and more.
0: Oh, <laughs> we doing sponsored ads now. <laughs> Hello to <shoot> your day.
1: <laughs> if you're feeling down, what's the, I'm trying to remember the lyric from Cheers, your job's a joke, you're broke, you love life's... That's friends you do first. Well either way, in, I mean the two messages of those two songs is when you're feeling down what you need is to go to the pub or to take solace in friends and what I'm suggesting is that you can also go to satire. Um, not just in terms of reading satire, but I think in producing satire and engaging in satirical activity.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting about sitcom theme tunes, isn't it? The Golden Girls that had one like that as well, didn't it?
1: Well, like your, your life shit is a sitcom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, hey baby, I hear the blues are calling Toss salad and scrambled eggs.
1: I feel like this is a great idea for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> going <laughs> on South Park, going to leave my woes behind. <laughs> so we'll talk about the greatest sitcom theme tunes. I mean, that's a good example. The South Park theme tune is also about leaving your woes behind, isn't it? Like All of these yeah. sitcoms are about, yeah, your life's shit, here's a sitcom. And I want to suggest that satirical activity can function in the same way that those sitcoms are positioning themselves are, as you say, as a balm in difficult times.
0: Okay. Um... So would it have to be a satirical sitcom or just any sitcom, would that?
1: Well, I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, would it have to be a satirical
0: sitcom or just any satire?
1: <laughs> well, I think there's that. I mean, there's there's kind of watching satire or engaging in, in satire that's been produced by somebody else and maybe feeling some catharsis in that. But also I'm interested in perhaps ways in which uh, as individuals, as if you like, amateur satirists, we might do satire on a day-to-day basis to to, as a way of almost as a form of therapy to get through things so you know you've just read out a big list of reasons why we could be miserable and feel like we've got no autonomy at the moment and maybe one way of you know dealing with that might be to write a satirical poem about it or crack a satirical joke or say to a friend or you know I've I've written out recent events as if it's animal farm like those kinds of activities that's a kind of Pressure release valve. I mean, that it doesn't have to be as as elaborate as writing down a, a parody of Animal Farm, but um, or a version of Animal Farm that parodies depressing events. It could just be, you know, a well timed quip.
0: That's true. I mean, that, that sort of seems fairly persuasive, doesn't it? That the, there's the power in kind of taking the situation and making it ridiculous and, and playing around with it. And if nothing else, that might be a distraction, but it might also forge bonds and connections and a reassuring sense that other people see the world in the same way as you do.
1: Yeah. Have you ever tried creative writing as a way of processing difficulties?
0: Um, I was having a conversation in a seminar group recently. We were talking about how COVID might be represented in the future. And everyone kind of agreed that right now wasn't the time for realism and that they wouldn't want to read a real depiction of it. But that, so then they were talking about other ways it could be represented. And a few of them said like maybe something satirical maybe like um, Animal Farm, but with, I think there's the Animal Farm, but with COVID, but it wouldn't actually have to be Animal Farm. It could be something else, but Animal Farm is kind of works quite well, doesn't it? Um, I think you could have a sort of bloated farmer who's ignoring reports of a terrible virus in all the neighboring farms and still keeps forcing all his animals out to work and then disaster strikes. I think you could definitely do something with... Um, the rules that appear on the wall and they you know like what are you talking about said squealer it always said stay alert it always said eat out to help out
1: that's such a good idea that um i think rather than suggest that someone should write that i think we should say right now that we are going to write that so nobody else uses the idea okay we've we've
0: got dibs on that how would you do it like i could see squealer as um michael gove yeah i the Napoleon as Rishi Sunak. Could he be? He's perhaps the most powerful individual after Johnson?
1: After the farmer? Yes, I think that would work. I mean, who's going to be, who would be Snowball?
0: Dominic Cummings.
1: Dominic Cummings, of course.
0: Comrade yeah. Snowball went to Castle Bernard, and then initially they defend him, but then later he, um, it, well, I suppose it would be different, wouldn't it, because it turns out that Snowball and ran away, destroyed the windmill, but also then ran to tell the Daily Mail about how Farmer J- Jones and Napoleon were all bent anyway.
1: Yeah, yeah. Bent kegs. <laughs> it just works. It just writes itself. And um, and if you think of the farmer saying he just wants that we were going to be stacking bodies high, mm. it probably works because we're all thinking of foot and mouth, aren't we? Where they literally did stack yeah. them. Animal corpses, high and set them on fire. So, this is beautiful. This is a uh, this is really really perfect.
0: Comrade Napoleon left the farm just before the third lockdown was announced.
1: Yeah, and who would be boxer? Do you think he would the... be a boxer?
0: Um, Ac-
1: Frontline academic staff.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't think of a boxer in the current government. Who who would be bo- Who's a who's a workhorse in? In the, in the government
1: but I mean could the could boxer just be essential workers do you think yeah um, that's
0: true just must work harder and then they get sent to the knackers yard
1: yeah I bet there is plenty of boxers in government but we don't see them because they're not interested in a limelight <gasps> they just do as they're told
0: civil servants
1: oh yeah there we go
0: I don't know I don't know who who would boxer be and and then you, what else there's all this sort of so there's this sort of misogynistically um, described kind of silly little donkeys, aren't there? Molly yeah. the Molly the donkey or something. Yeah, it's it's got some it's got some teeth, hasn't it? As a plan,
1: well, it's got legs. It's like like all like all the equal animals. It's got some legs.
0: What would the windmill be? HS two.
1: Yeah. Um, well, it might be the the Brexit the Brexit uh,
0: Yeah, it could be Brexit, couldn't it? Yeah. yeah. We we delivered on the windmill
1: yeah but it's broken this is broken farmer james it doesn't work I,
0: I i think honestly people like you distract the issue people are not interested in endlessly going over the windmill the windmill is done we've laid the windmill to rest we delivered on the windmill i think frankly it's a distraction when people really want to talk about the success of the vaccination program they want to talk about the other things that we've committed to deliver on i think talking about the windmill is is frankly and I don't mean any offence to your profession, but journalists get very hung up on this. And I think, frankly, the British public are bored. They don't want to hear about that.
1: No, that's very good. Thank you, Farmer Jones. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the, the windmill it, it is supposed to create more bread, but it just, spews up, it just sucks up all the wheat and spews out shit that costs twice as much.
0: Mm, yeah, okay, well, that helped.
1: <laughs> yeah, I feel better for that. So that's a good demonstration of how, how, that, how that works. How would you characterise the potential for satire to cheer up people, the people who do it, and the people who read and listen to it? Why does it make you feel better, potentially, to do a bit of satire or, or have a bit of satire in your life? Distract
0: you, first. <laughs> um, well, it's about community, isn't it? Perhaps in small, self-selected communities and solidarity. But I think also, like you do all of that and it's quite funny and for a moment there's like a creative thrill about it like oh yeah that could be that and that could be that and that's a very clever funny thing to say and then at the end of it you're like yeah that's that's good because it's like it really is that shit
1: it's cathartic isn't it to to acknowledge these things i mean i think so often satire is about well it's it's what's the definition of it that's most often used it's a moral corrective that foregrounds mm. hypocrisy or stupidity so if something is, if you can see a hypocrisy that no one is acknowledging, um, because it's not the dominant discourse to acknowledge it, to be able to say that in satire, even though you might not be able to change the course of the conversation, is a moment of relief, isn't it? To, uh, and then you form a community with whoever's listening, because it's like, well, we can both agree that actually there's, there are bits of this that are incongruous, or there are aspects of this that, that seem hypocritical or nonsensical.
0: Yeah, but then by foregrounding the hypocrisy, you've just made yourself think more about the hypocrisy and the intransigence of it, haven't you? And I just feel like it's a pipe dream, but I'd rather there wasn't all the shit that you had to foreground and that everything was was all right and you didn't have to foreground things and in so doing make yourself more aware of them. But that's just not going to happen, is it? Well, I so... mean,
1: I think the way I see it is that the the issue is that you're already aware of it, and there's potential relief in being able to express that awareness. You're not more depressed because you've satirized it. You've perhaps True. found you're depressed already, but you've maybe found like-minded people and, and there's some relief in, in acknowledging it. I don't know.
0: The alternative isn't it, which I think would be really difficult to achieve in the current climate, would be to remain resolutely unaware of and unbothered by pretty much everything. Like distract yourself, do do something else. Um, I don't know what that would be, but like just somehow don't think about anything. Maybe like, if you could persuade yourself that, you know, for example, Boris Johnson is doing the best job he can. He's got a crazy amount to do. He does his best um, and somehow all will be well maybe even to feel like your particular group will be favored under the reign of Boris Johnson and that you know he's ju- he's just a person he's working hard probably too hard and all all will be well and then you could just kind of nod and smile and
1: yeah and if you were able to get into that zone of being you know it unaware that 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 state of unawareness then you would have no need for satire I think satire comes from a place of having an awareness you can't switch off, perhaps.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, we're going to talk about this later, but i always remember that Jonathan Swift's Gravestone says, you know, at last he's found peace, at last he's found peace where the vexations of the world can no longer lacerate his heart. And it's like, that's that's not acknowledging that he was a satirist, that's acknowledging that he did satire because he couldn't not observe all of the injustices and stupidities. So... Yeah, so I agree, but I think, we, we'll talk more about this later, but I feel like satire is, is a coping strategy for people who are aware. Do
0: you think satirists are thin-skinned and unable to distract themselves from, from reality? So, I mean, like the idea of being lacerated, that's, you know, that, means, that suggests you kind of experience all the injustices of the world in a very immediate, painful and unpleasant way so are satirists just do they just feel everything more keenly and more miserably and and can't distract themselves from that do you think there's a particular person kind of person that's a satirist
1: well yeah a a clever person all right okay yeah (laughs) no i'm just kidding um yeah perhaps but then the satire itself the product is that is potentially a way in which they have distracted themselves or they have Sort that kind of relief but you mean if you weren't a satirist and you felt those injustices you'd just find solace in a different form of entertainment that wasn't constantly dragging up all of the problems
0: yeah yeah i don't know just just seems like there's i don't know that that just suggests to me that there are people who feel it all and can't get over it and nurse their nurse their misery more and maybe those people are more likely to be satirists yeah well, I mean, that, no, it's, it's blatantly obvious, isn't it? That's an incredibly pedestrian point because if you're of a sunny disposition and nothing really troubles you too much, why would you start being a satirist?
1: And you probably, if you were that person, then you would think that, um, what's it called? The Mash Report was amazing because you'd be like, ha-ha, they're just, they're just saying things that I agree with. This is hilarious. This is absolutely fine for me because I am really just a happy, cheerful person who enjoys... Uncomplicated and taxing commentary on things that I imagine is happening in the world.
0: I don't think you would be watching The Mash Report though. I think you'd be watching.
1: This um, Brown's Boys.
0: Yeah, or maybe, I don't know, what else might you watch? Gogglebox.
1: I do like Gogglebox.
0: <laughs> I feel like it's just worn a little bit thin now, hasn't it?
1: To be fair, I haven't watched it in about six years. Well, speaking of things that have gone on too long, should we yeah. introduce today's interview?
0: Yeah, Yeah, so it's quite serendipitous and not something we intentionally planned, but our guest this week, Dr Dieter de Klerk, has written a book that just came out called Satire, Comedy and Mental Health, Coping with the Limits of Critique, which obviously takes as one of its central topics the issue of mental health, and it's Mental Health Awareness Month right now, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I have to admit, I hadn't given much thought to the relationship between satire and mental health until I started reading Dieter's book, but... I quite quickly realised a lot of what we talk about in terms of the function and effect of satire, like what we were just talking about minutes ago, can be couched in the language of mental health. How do you mean? Well, I mean, we're talking about, when we talk about coping, for example, like using satire to manage and cope with a a situation. Yeah, when we're talking about catharsis and processing, satire is a way of processing things. I mean, we've talked before about, I don't know if we talked about it in the podcast, but we've talked about it in real life, about one of the functions of satire is that it creates solidarity doesn't it that you can unite people in by making them agree with a certain point that arises from a piece of satire
0: yeah and i suppose perhaps we're we're too accustomed to thinking of mental health in in specific ways and in ways that are perhaps outdated now and that Obviously there's a difference between feeling temporarily sad at some situations going on around you and having a mental health crisis or a mental health problem. And I wouldn't want to like lazily conflate the two, but then just in, I suppose like when you have a cold, you're unhealthy, you're feeling unhealthy at that point. It doesn't mean you're an unhealthy person or have any long-term kind of implications for your health, but you know, colds and, fleeting sadness, uh, I suppose they're both related in comparable ways, maybe?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not an expert on all of this stuff. I think one important point is people tend to talk about mental health as though it, it comes and goes. You have mental health all of the time. Sometimes your mental health, you know, might have gone awry or you need some kind of assistance or help or support. And, and sometimes it's going to be completely fine, but it, it moves around, it fluctuates is what I'm trying to say. Like all yeah. health fluctuates, isn't it? So, I mean, when I say sat- satire um, can help with mental health, I don't mean that you have to be suffering a crisis and then yeah. take satire like it's some kind of medicine. But, you know, yeah. if you are feeling down about something or you are struggling to think of things in a different way, then satire perhaps offers an opportunity to do that. And that's what Dieter's book is about.
0: If we set those words to music, they could be the theme tune for our sitcom. If you are feeling down about something in some sort of way, then satire might be a way to deal with that. Right. <laughs> has written a book called Satire, Comedy and Mental Health, Coping with the Limits of Critique. Um, yeah. And we were interested in talking to him because I think that's, that's quite a novel angle and argument, isn't it? That, um, that satire might have those kinds of benefits, so go ahead.
1: Absolutely, Dieter is a lecturer in film and media studies at the University of Kent, where he he focuses on the existential value of popular media, and he's particularly interested, as you might have guessed, in satire, comedy, and cartoons. And one other point, just before we play the interview, is that uh, due to a series of unfortunate events, I got locked out of my office as we were recording this interview. So for the duration, I'm stood in a corridor, which does affect the sound quality um, it was an empty corridor due to the COVID-19 pandemic. There was no one else in the building, but it is a bit of an open space. So I sound echoey. That's why.
0: One podcast where you were trapped in your flat, one where you were trapped outside of your office. What's it going to be next? Trapped in a hot air balloon.
1: Tune in next week to find out.
0: Dieter, thanks for being here. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks, Joe. And thanks, Adam. It's, it's really great to be here.
0: You talk about mental health in the book. What kinds of thing are you talking about? Can you take us through that?
2: It's got to do with what, what satire is trying to do. You know, we've talked about how satire is reacting against society. So there's something you know, out of joint or out of balance in, in society. And I think, well, just look if we just look around, there's, a, there's so many issues in the world that the world can become a place that we feel that we can... You know, we can become disconnected from that place,
1: mm.
2: disgusted with it, um, consumed by anger. So I think that's the area where I'm thinking about with particular kind of mental health issues. So the, the model of depression that I'm using is a model that understands depression as you know, being disconnected from the environment, being disconnected from friends, being disconnected from, from the world. And so i think i think that well there's so much things that are going on in the world that you could become depressed in a clinical sense i definitely don't want to say that satire in that context is the same as antidepressants or anything like that i'm just trying to think about satire as something that we can use as a resource in our life to help to negotiate how we live in this imperfect world in the same way that you might you know hang out with your friends to try and find some connection there, or you do, you know, sports or anything. So that's that's what I'm thinking. And then you know, in, in the book I mention these kinds of let's let's call them social mental illnesses like Brexit anxiety is, is one that was in, in the news. So yeah, people, I mean I guess you know, people like myself living in the UK, being European citizens, you yeah. know, having always just, you know, it's three hours to my parents' house here. You It's know, just, just a sea in between. It's a different country. That didn't used to be such a big deal. Now it's a bigger deal. There's all sorts of complexities, even now with the pandemic. And I think you can just, you know, that can really have an impact, I think, on one's mood. You know, I think it can lead to mental suffering. Uh, people have talked about, like, political burnout, you know, being consumed by so much political news that you burn out. Um, there's this you know, climate grief or climate anxiety when you're... Um, so I think that, that satire can function as a kind of intervention in these areas where I think that's also what satirists often say. And then a, a second mental health problem I feel that is often at stake in sat- satires is that, well, the world's on fire and I should extinguish the fire shouldn't i i should just do everything i can possibly do Uh, i I shouldn't be having this podcast with you really because it's quite vain for me to uh, do that with you and just you know take the pleasure of talking about my book i could be doing other things but i i feel like that that kind of thinking also can make you sick uh i I think i introduce a model you know of neurotic perfectionism and, you know you're constantly consumed by guilt and shame that you really should be doing better um, all the time so i think those are i guess two poles that i'm thinking of that you can become so disconnected from the world you know, that it depresses you or you know you can you know feel like you should change the world to the extent that you can connect to with it again so you know changing the world making everything better constantly all the time i think is something that can lead to a, a, a neurotic perfectionism. So I think that that's at stake a lot of the time in the production and you know, engagement of satire. And I think a lot of satirists actually say similar things in their satire, That that's probably what they're doing.
0: That seems like a really sort of logical and persuasive take, but it's also quite original, isn't it? Because I think we often think of satire as being a way to process anger or frustration at any given situation, but what you're talking about is a kind of combination of alienation and ennui and profound sadness that that satire can have a role in ameliorating.
2: There's an American satirist called Dan Perkins who writes who, who draws cartoons under the pen name Tom Tomorrow. I think is this cartoon he drew a couple of years ago when. In the summer, I remember it. it, there was a plane that was shot out of the air. I think it was a Malaysian Airlines and there were lots of Dutch people on the plane. That happened. There was somebody who, Pharrell Williams' song, Happy, I think somebody was making videos in Iran and then got whipped because they're you know, dancing to that song. And then he wrote, like the cartoonist like, well, welcome to like you know, the bleak existential nihilism of the world. And I think I'm a little bit inspired. You know, I talk a bit about Nietzsche in, in the book as his inspiration for some of this thinking. Uh, and Bernard Williams, I think, was a particularly sensitive interpreter of Nietzsche. It's like in a world where Nietzsche, you know, gold is dead. if you constantly think about the ills of the world, that it's just going to consume you. And if you just, I think Nietzsche has this thought-provoking idea that you know all the good things in the world and if you have to think about all the suffering that had to happen like if you have to think about all the suffering that had to happen to enable the kind of technology that allows us to have this conversation you know which is quite a wonderful thing. I you know if you had to consider all the suffering that must have led to this on the way, that's just mind-blowing. And I think so there's this kind of really for me, you know, you've got the direct social ills of the world but i think it's also kind of a more underlying that's just a world that we find ourselves in the kind of you know we live on the third rock from the sun and we've got these kind of physical conditions and things have happened and i think we just have to deal with that and satire is a way of dealing
1: with it i think or at least an instrument that can help us to deal with it there's a chapter where you get well quite early i think it's like chapter three isn't it where you get into the sort of what Joe and I have referred to previously is the medical metaphor for satire, where satire is like a kind of cure and the satirist is a doctor or a physician. Because you sort of, you quote John Wright, who explains that satirists like Horace, satire is a literary medicine for a world morally and socially out of health. And if this holds good, the satirist is a kind of doctor. And this model of satire, where the satirist is a, is a doctor administering, medicine. I think Pope says something about his satire is a kind of bad medicine, doesn't he, that, that people have to take. So I mean, one question is, uh, how sincere do you think that pose is? Because w- when sort of Pope uses it, or to a lesser extent Dryden, it's sort of a justification for upsetting people, mm. isn't it? It's going to upset you, but actually you need to be upset to learn the lesson to get better. But then also it sort of assumes that satire is going to have an effect and is going to change something that by enduring this satirical attack, you're gonna become a better person or some change is gonna happen. So I just wondered, do you think the satire as cure model is a useful way to think about satire? No, it is very worthwhile
2: for historians to you know, do research about how satirists have thought of themselves as doctors, how they have actually probably used that as a way to justify, like you say, upsetting people. I think the study of that uh, metaphor I think is really important to help us understand how satirists have you know, presented themselves, and I think also how satirist, satire has often been received. But I do think that it's fundamentally mistaken to think of satire that way, because it introduces mistaken assumptions, and it introduces this kind of all or nothing. You know, Either you cure it, or you don't do anything. And I feel that's often what we fall back on when there are discussions about satire. Well, either it completely, changes the world or, you know, it's the reason why Thatcher remained in power. Like, it's 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 all nothing, which is weird because like critical journalism, for example, nobody's going to have a go at critical journalism for not having resolved a climate change crisis yet. Like, is somebody having a go at The Guardian for not having done that? But satirists is like, well, you do this satire about climate change and we still have climate change. And it's like, I think there's unreasonable expectations. And there is, I think, those unreasonable expectations are inspired by some of that discourse around you know satires are doctors and another discourse and i think this is where my alternative i think comes in is this discourse of, of magic where you know the satirist i think it was elliot in a book in the 60s was talking about satire may have come from magic rituals um and you know that satire would have kind of a magic effect on the person who is the target of the satire it's like yeah, Donald Trump, like you know, the most satirized president in uh, I think American history. So much satire in the run up to the 2016 elections, and I I didn't think he was cured by it, right? It didn't seem to, or or if his followers. So there's something I think wrong with that model, and it also I think allows skeptics of satire to say, well, I see, you see, you know, satire doesn't do anything. It makes us passive and some some magic. I thought of all the concepts was actually a concept that might help us understand what contributions satire can make, you know, to a critical process of, you know, trying to get political change. So we all know the Trump baby blimp. What's interesting about the Trump baby blimp is that you could say, well, you know, people threw the Trump baby blimp and Trump was still in office, so satire hasn't accomplished anything. Or you could say, well, if you look into it, the people behind the Trump blimp, they said, OK, next time Trump comes to the UK, we'll fly the blimp. But only if we get £30,000 that we can then put towards grassroots causes that you know target specific policies of Trump. For example, I think some policies about trans people in the army and you know that they would use that money to do social action there. And so this is what I think satire can do. It can be a kind of totem around which people of a certain kind of political moral persuasion can gather that helps them to stay motivated to engage in political action. And I think that to that extent, you know, it's probably a bit of an instrumentalized idea, but I do think that you know, satire is a bit instrumental there to support other more effective forms of political action. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, the only thing I would add to that is that where does magic come in? You know, when the um, New Zealand All Blacks do rugby, I do I'm from the continent, right? You know, do rugby. As if that's yeah. <laughs> before a rugby game, I do this dance. It's um, the hacker, isn't it? The hacker, yeah. Thanks, yeah. thanks, Adam. The hacker is a magic ritual in the sense that it helps. And this is from a philosopher called Collingwood, who's, who writes about art as magic. And he says that magic doesn't have anything to do with wizards or that magics are artifacts that we use to psych ourselves up. And they can also be performances. So a war dance, you know, it's not like a native tribe thinks that the war dance is going to magically kill, destroy the enemy. But the war man, war dance is acting out victory that, you know, so it's a representation that they use of defeating the enemy and that representation helps them to psych them up to then actually go and do it so in the same way that the trump baby is a representation that sucks us up to then go out and and do it and the hacker of course is like it's a it's a symbolic representation of being victorious over the opponent which is exactly what they want to do in the game we don't think that the hacker is going to magically mean that the uh, all blacks are just going to win the game they still need to do the running right they still need to put the effort in and i feel that's the same thing with what satire can do in the political sphere, I think, is about you know, psyching ourselves up, motivating ourselves to keep going at it, and uh, to gather ourselves around, you know, anti-Trump protests, for example, and then in the support of, you know, doing other things that that might have political effect or might not have political effect, and then we then have to deal with that again.
0: It's, um, it, talking about the the war dance and the way it sort of like performs victory, it reminds me of what's called in some self-help context like it's an affirmation isn't it it's like you're affirming what it would what it would feel like to win and what victory feels like so i guess like satire is it is a sort of you know like affirmations when you're supposed to sort of say to yourself i am strong i am loved i am successful in my career or whatever it's kind of it's kind of like that isn't it but i was also thinking with the medical model and how you were talking about how there might be unintended consequences it kind of doesn't allow for the for the slow burn of satire does it because say when brass eye came out everybody didn't immediately think we'll change the discourse around drugs paedophilia animal rights we'll we'll stop looking to celebrities as if they kind of know anything more than we do about these issues and and I suppose like similarly with modest proposal as another example is it's not so much that at the time everybody's like oh whoa stop it we'll do we'll do this differently we'll, and low climate changes ended or Trump is not in office but brass eye did change in the long term like how we think about and respond to and might be skeptical about. Um, media coverage or um, the ways in which politicians discuss or frame or kind of appropriate causes and it, it changes those things in the long term so that you know anybody who's watched it will will frequently be reminded of like the the cake drug control mm-hmm or the the keyboard that makes you more suggestible and in the same like you know there's countless of countless moments when people will be reminded of swift's modest proposal and make comparisons between that and and something that is written straight-facedly and not tongue-in-cheek but might be reminded of the modest proposal and and kind of be prompted to think in more detailed ways about about what's going on so yeah i guess that that's my point like the medical model doesn't allow for the fact that satire extends through through years and it and it has a kind of slow burn effect even if it doesn't immediately and visibly change things
2: yeah and there's like scholars in communication studies like amber day and my my colleague here in comedy studies sophie quirk we talk about the um, incremental ethereal hard to quantify impact of satire i think that's just it it's it's hard to quantify and therefore it might seem like it doesn't exist i i do think that and here's the thing that if you're really interested in just changing the world to put it like that then you're then why would you make satire because i feel like sat i mean satire has it has has a role to play right for sure and i think perhaps the contribution i'm trying to make is introducing a, a concept like magic and the hacker dance maybe try and help us conceptualize what that could be by you know being kind of an emotional booster but i think Dick gregory uh, the uh, satirist in the 1960s american satirist um, african-american satirist who joined the um you know was, was very active in the civil rights movement and said like I'm just going to stop being an entertainer now, and I'm going to be full-time an activist. And that's why, you know, the question is, why do, you know, why do you entertain, right? Because ultimately, I think you have to come to terms with the fact that, sure, maybe the entertainment will bring in some people to the cause that might otherwise have not come in before. And, you know, John Oliver, I think, is a good example of that. And there's the um, net neutrality debate in the U.S. where Oliver had quite an impact, where people were starting, to, you know, he, he asked people, he said, okay... Um, the FCC, the you know the regulator, send them emails, bombard them with emails, you know, to talk about this issue of keeping the internet free and open, uh, and people responded. There's interesting research, um, I think, by um, a research group at Harvard that demonstrated that yes, Oliver had an effect, but if you had a look, the more traditional ways of political action against this um, issue had an even greater impact. So satire can do. I think satire can definitely have political impact. I don't think it's the most impactful way of political action, but that's because it's really also trying to do something else. I think the entertainment is trying to help us cope with the fact that we can't always change the world. In order to be a satirist, you you need to want to get up every morning to change the world, but in order to preserve your sanity, you just have to accept that you're not going to. And it's this deep ambiguity between changing the world, but at the same time accepting that you're not going to be able to fully do that. That's something that we have to deal with every one of us in our lives and i think that that's why satire is so important it is this kind of tension it can help us it's a it's a kind of space or an artistic way of you know dealing with the fact that we we are imperfect and we live in an imperfect world you know if i had a magic wand i would you know make everything better but i don't and also well often i do things which are not altruistic things which are, are selfish because in order to care for myself I just have to accept that I can't always care for others by which I mean sometimes I make a, a choice for my self-care which is not the most altruistic choice And I think you know I think we're all educators and teachers even with our students like often I think there's a there's a point where you say well if I do this for student x I have to do it for all the students and like then I won't sleep anymore there won't be enough hours in the day and in order for my self-care, I need to sleep. That's where the entertainment comes in, I feel. That's, I think, why we have the entertainment. I think the entertainment is an aesthetic way of actually dealing with um
1: In the book, so you explore the idea of satire as a cure, and then you move on to satire as coping, then you're satire yes. as a coping strategy. And then ultimately, that leads to satire as a kind of therapeutic process. It's interesting hearing you talk about self-care there, because in a previous episode, we've talked to Lee Stein, who's written a satire on self-care and the self-care industry so it's just nice it's interesting to see satire be figured in that way but yeah i just wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about the ways in which satire might serve, like how it might practically function as a, a yeah music role
2: i think the underlying model um that i think about what can we do with satire in our own lives if we're not actually creating satire is a is a model that likes to think about every, that our engagement with media, whether it's like reading cartoons or watching TV, that we're always doing something that's fundamentally active already. In order to you know, you need to sit back and enjoy the show. But in order to enjoy yourself show, there's actually quite a lot going on cognitively. Um, but it's also a model that sees that says that we can take that activity one step further, and we see that, for example, with memes, like people have. They watch shows and then they do something with that and they create memes but they can do other things with satire as well i think we can um you know use it as a resource right that have been we can i think deliberately use satire as a resource that we could integrate in our in our lives and there's two ways I, I i write about um the one is just that sometimes when the world looks like an extremely bleak and alien place you engage with your favorite work of art favorite piece of medium and behold it makes sense again and here is, is Nietzsche talks about we have art so that we can deal with truth so the truth is that if you just think about the amount of suffering in the world and the amount of suffering in the world that got us to where we are now and even some really good things advancements in medicine for example there was always you know at the expense of suffering that's a i think that's what Nietzsche talks about when he talks about truth like you know you can't you can't deny that if you want to live an authentic life i feel like you have to come to terms with that and i think that might might make the world feel alien a kind of you know existential philosophical depression i think it's like veld or whatever you want to call it and then there's uh, i think aesthetic experiences when they are pleasurable i think mean, they can be so powerful and they can be something that we can reconnect again to the world so I think satirists often paint a big bleak, bleak picture and then there's an amazing joke and like amazing oh wow there's value again in the world you need to be angry angry but if you're angry all the time you're going to be consumed by rage right and so you need to be you need to laugh you need to step back And I think it's interesting and this is an intervention I was trying to make often you know you need to you need to be angry, you can't be angry all the time, you need to laugh. Often I think laughter is conceived as you get rid of the anger and then you kind of you know go on again. Um, so kind of expulsion of emotions which can be you know difficult to deal with but you know anger is also something that we need to engage in political action. If you're not angry then you're not going to do anything and we react to something morally when we are motivated emotionally like satirists. Are angry. That's why they make a stand. So I think I'm referring to the safety valve model, which is always say satire just gets rid of all the anger. And I don't think that's what's going on. I just think that satire, instead of getting rid of the anger, gives us something that we can enjoy even in a very bleak time. And you know, the the psychologists uh, Susan Folkman and Richard Lazarus, who have introduced the transactional model of coping, you know, talk about the virtues of, you know, being able to distance yourself and talk about certain kind of aesthetic experience, like watching a good movie that can help you to take some distance. And they also say, like, that doesn't mean that you need to distance yourself all the time, or that you then necessarily become, you know, apathetic towards the thing that you're distancing yourself from. Often, you know, the, the, the fact that you distance yourself gives you more energy, you're just kind of recharge your batteries and then you can come back to the 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 problem. And I think that you know satire might be a way of helping to negotiate that movement. I think from political action to self-care that you need to engage with so that your political action doesn't become doesn't consume you. I think think for me that's a more interesting model to conceive of satire than talking about the safety valve model.
1: So speaking of people being consumed by rage, just always it, all through his conversation it's reminded me of Jonathan Swift's, the dedication on Jonathan Swift's grave, the epitaph, which says uh, here is laid the body of Jonathan Swift, Doctor of Divinity, Dean of the Cathedral Church, where fierce indignation can no longer rend his heart. <laughs> it's just this idea that like his whole life he was lacerated by just anger at the way the world was and the way people were and stupidity and vice and stuff and that death is a kind of release for him. And I think, I mean, i I think I've, I've got some work from
2: scholars that I quote around Swift and that, that he, he talks about you know, if you feel melancholic, you know, entertain yourself, engage with entertainments. And, you know, there are scholarship that talks about him, Swift as, you know, clown and preacher, and that there seems to be something that Swift himself puts forward about the entertaining qualities that I think are central to satire and his satire that can act as some kind of solace, you know, to indeed deal with all of those issues that you, you know, that can consume you, like you say, that that are on the tombstone.
0: You're talking about satire and you discuss the dual purposes as critique and as entertainment. So can you tell us a bit about how those two things might interact and what some of the implications of that might be?
2: I think I call it a genre with the purpose to critique and entertain. And those purposes, they fruitfully interact, but there's also a tension uh, between them. You know, most satire really can be characterized by an interaction between... You know, satirists want to critique something that is going wrong in society and they have moral reasons to do so. And by moral reasons, I mean like, you know, you take a stand and you say, I oh, know, like, you know, I can't take this anymore, right? You know, we need to kind of take a stand against this practice, typically a practice in society which is going wrong. So that's something that I feel distinguishes satire from um, particular kinds of comedy. I think Mock the Week is often labelled by the BBC as satire show, but I'm not entirely certain how much satire is really going on there, because I feel like they are quite literally mocking the week, or they're using politics to create comedy, whereas I think satirists often use comedy to take a stand against politics.
0: That is so interesting and useful because we've come back to Mock the Week a few times I think it's one of the first things we discussed in our pilot episode where we were we were talking about things like Mock the Week being sort of lazily branded as like a satirical take on on what's going on but you're you're right I think that really clarifies why we were sort of grappling at like well why doesn't that feel like satire and it is it is that, isn't it? it? There is no element of we're taking a stand here, it's it's finding humour in things that are irritating, but it's not about taking a stand, apart from yeah. literally when they have to stand up. And I
2: think you can trace that throughout the history of satire. I'm not obviously a historian, like both of yourselves, that, you know, but is satire is a word that the Romans introduced, of course, it, as a phenomenon, it, it, it existed in other cultures across the world, but, you know, the, the word that we use for it today is a word that the Romans introduced, and the Romans, like juvenile and Horace, they kind of self-styled themselves as making a social intervention, and I think, you know, we've got good reasons today based on, on that, is that that's a word we've always used for that kind of Entertainment that is critical, but to come back to Mock the Week, you know, it's not doing anyone any favors to brand Mock the Week as satire because I think it introduces um, expectations for Mock the Week that Mock the Week then doesn't live up to, and then people have a go at Mock the Week for you know not being satire. And I feel like well, it's actually really good professional comedy that has its place, but by calling it satire, actually I think denying what it is doing. So I do think you know definitions can be pedantic, uh, but I felt like trying to distinguish satire from things which are not satire uh, does to some extent matter, especially because, and I imagine that's part of the reason maybe why, why you're also interested in satire, is that we do think that it can have something important to say about society and that it can make an important contribution. And then entertainment, there is satire, I, th- I think, that is not comedy. And um, I think the typical example in the literature is 1984, by Orwell. Um, I always also think um, things like uh, Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, which is something I refer to quite a lot in the book. Actually, the word entertainment comes up quite a lot in the in the literature around satire. I think Dustin Griffin, as far as I understand the argument that he's making, he's actually going against what he calls a moral consensus at the time, a consensus among critics and scholars that satire does exactly the kind of things that we say it does that distinguishes it from mock the week. you know that it does take a moral stand and that satirists do want to make a, an intervention in in society and and griffin argues well no no they're entertainers you know what they do is they create aesthetic artifacts they create performances they create um you know poems they create films whatever in order to entertain us and and i agree with that Uh, It's just that I think that they do both at the same time. And so entertainment, I think it's slightly broader than, well, it is broader than than comedy. So it's, to that extent, a useful term. It's also a really difficult term. My fourth chapter in the book, I feel, feels like the most technical chapter there I wrote where I kind of think through, okay, what kind of aesthetic experiences, what kind of art experiences are entertaining and which ones are not? So here's the go I had at it. And, And I think this is one of the moments where obviously in the book I go like, well, this is what entertainment is and you know I'm trying to pretend that I'm really sure about this Uh, but obviously I'm just having a go at it uh, because it's really complex and it's so complex because what's entertainment for the Romans is not necessarily entertainment for us today nevertheless even I think for the Romans entertainment was something that you do to take a break from the seriousness of everyday life so you know when we want to entertain ourselves we're just you know sitting down to relax and enjoy ourselves so I think it has a a function of diverting ourselves and also a kind of emotional dimension of having fun, having a good time. And it's also typically something that is classified as lowbrow. But when I read some scholarship about Swift, for example, I was quite interested to recognize that scholar said, well, actually, you know, now we think about Swift as being part of a particular kind of canon. But around the time with satire was actually considered to be you know, even quite lowbrow. for for Swift. So I do think that in lots of contexts, there's that kind of lowbrow angle to it. A Modest Proposal, which is about a horrible situation. You could still say that's an entertaining piece of work. And there's an awkwardness about that, an ambiguity, but at the same time, there's a kind of collaboration between the entertainment and the critique. So in A Modest Proposal, it's extremely grotesque. And the grotesque nature of it makes it entertaining. But once you get the irony, you kind of go like oh yeah it's so grotesque but that grotesqueness is both entertaining and critical because I think that grotesqueness also comes in the service of the point that Swift wants to make is that you know the people that propose a certain kind of cold-blooded population solutions to the you know Irish famine that he critiques he's mocking that grotesqueness right he's making a critical point and you see like that's actually how grotesque your ideas are about how to resolve this solution so I think that in satire, there is this central interaction between critique and entertainment. The, the entertainment helps the critique, and vice versa, I think. You know, it's funny because it's smart and it's smart because it's it's funny. And I think, you know, critique and entertainment interact, but both are, are there also in their own right. That I think characterizes a lot of satire. That's I think what makes it interesting, ambiguous something that we want to talk, read and and
1: write about. The first chapter reminded me of um, Ashley Marshall's book, The Practice of Satire in England. She begins with her definition of satire, which is critique plus something else. So it's always critique plus exaggeration, critique plus irony. But something that never really occurred to me until I was reading your book is that she doesn't get into what, and I'm not not blaming, this is no shade on her, like it's not what she was doing, but it didn't occur to me to wonder what we mean by critique but you get into that immediately and start talking about it as uh, critique is about a moral commitment or a moral there has to be some kind of moral intervention and then a little bit later you talk about Nazi Germany satire but I think the point that you make there is you know satire can be combining critique and entertainment but it isn't necessarily doing good good work in the eyes of history and stuff but that just made me think that as a, and we've talked about this in the podcast before as a satirist it seems like you have to have a pretty sure sense that you're on the right side of history before you start making these interventions or do you think there's a kind of like arrogance or egotism to, to decide that you know what's right and that you can make these interventions
2: yeah, that's a really good question i think satirists are people who are indeed passionate about being morally right and i use the word passion as well the kind of moral framework that i am basing myself on is a, a philosophy you know that comes comes from from David Hume and that more morality has to do with you know in it's an emotional process and it's a process of where emotions like anger and disgust and contempt they play an important role but I can't take it anymore right and I think that's what satire satirists are about I can't take it anymore and that's also so Simon Blackburn is, is a philosopher you know talks about we enter the domain of morality when we can't take it anymore like for example <laughs> I don't know. Um sometimes I, sometimes I listen to songs by Bon Jovi and I feel like, yeah, you know, life makes sense. You might not like Bon Jovi, but you're not gonna have a go at me for liking Bon Jovi, right? But suppose I an apology in advance, but you know, I like to kidnap babies. You're gonna then have a go at yeah. Yeah. And I think morality is that is this, is where you're, you can't, you know, I feel like I need to stand against this. We can't tolerate this anymore. This is when morals happen. So I'm not necessarily want to say that it's kind of ego or, I think this is quite normal. And I think we have something that we have in our ordinary moral lives as well. Does that mean that we're right? No, not necessarily. I mean, for this is really horrible to say, but Nazi, you know, the, the, the Nazis were driven by passionate beliefs. They were extremely wrong-footed. Um, I think there is con- like, I, th- I think for for a while there was this question like, is there right wing satire? Uh, and I think there probably wasn't that much right wing satire that made it through mainstream channels, you know, like um, the American cable TV or like so much right wing memes. Uh, I think the the alt right is thinking that they are winning the meme war and that progressive can't make satirical memes. So when I say that you know, critique is, is, is a moral act, by that I mean for the satirists, yeah, they think they're on the side of the right morally. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are. And this brings back to Mock the Week. I don't think morals come into it very much in Mock the Week, maybe occasionally, but it's not about morals, right? I think it's just about having fun. A satire can have a bit of a kind of badge of honor by trying to make an intervention in the domain of you know, morals and socially wrong. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we should always praise it, or that calling satires, that calling something satire necessarily means that it is a a good thing.
0: I found a a quotation the other day because we were thinking about exactly that, right-wing satire and left-wing satire and the cancellation of the MASH report. And I think it's the writer Philip Pullman, in intervening in that conversation, said satire is by definition small c conservative because you're saying... Things are going wrong. I want them to go back to when they were right. Or
1: yeah. So Philip Pullman said, "I think satire is intrinsically conservative in that it relies on a common acceptance of moral standards, which it mocks its targets for falling away from. Satire can't exist in a world of moral relativity." Private Eye was right-wing from the start. I mean, I wonder, like, if you talk about *The Handmaid's Tale*
2: and this critique of women's rights and i think the handmaid's tale is is problematically fascinating in the sense that you know the 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 book and then the series that it provides um evidence to the ongoing problems around you know women in society and i think the point i'm trying to make is that. so Atwood in the Atwood wrote the book in the 80s, you know, Reagan, you know, the religious right. And I think she 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 introduced it at as a kind of what if, you know, what if you push those ideologies that we see in the, the right about women and their place in society to the extreme? What do we end up? Well, we end up with Gilead. And she's she's quite adamant about this is nothing that I've written in Gilead. You know hasn't existed before in some shape or form You know, it's all existed in some shape or form so i think my point i'm trying to make is that atwood is not atwood is critiquing something but she's not kind of saying like oh let's go back to the way it used to be when it was better because it wasn't it's never been better and like nowadays you know how the series i think got quite a lot of resonance um around trump and of course you know the the infamous grabbing by the pussy you know tape so I'm not sure that it is conservative. And I think Pullman obviously is a, is a really great author author and a critic. But I think he also does the things that you can do as a critic. And you can say these kind of things about satire that are punchy and, I guess, quotable. But I think when you're trying to do scholarship about satire, I think you're probably getting to the point where you say, actually, it's, it's really quite hard to say things about satire in one or two sentences and sum it up very neatly like that I think it is it's really quite complex just like that discussion we just had about yeah it is it is you know satire makes a moral intervention but that doesn't necessarily mean it's morally right there's a lot to unpack there I think so sometimes very you know interesting worthwhile artists critics like Pullman you know they make these quotes about satire just makes us feel satisfied when we should be really angry and therefore it's ultimately conservative those are really really big claims and I often think that we should be a little bit more careful yeah I mean Philip Pullman won't care obviously because he's Philip Pullman but,
0: that's the thing yeah. isn't it Philip Pullman can sort of say a sound bitey contribution to the conversation that seems logical in the moment at which it's being said but when you're writing a monograph you have to show your working a little bit more and then um, be a bit more nuanced about it, perhaps. It's
2: good that Philip Pullman says that, because then we've got stuff to react to, and I think everybody's got their role in there.
1: And so satire can help us com- cope with unfortunate, undeniable, and unchangeable social and political circumstances. It, is it the function of satire really to make us more complacent and actually mitigate against change? Does it, by making the status quo bearable, does it actually create an environment where, yeah, we're, we're less likely to, to take decisive action to change things, or we just... You mentioned it earlier today. You described the argument that satire is passive. I mean, what do you think to that objection? Well, that's the that's the
2: fundamental question. I mean, the question I ask myself is: Have I wrote? Have I written this book just so I can sleep better at night? And you know, like it's okay. These you know, have a beer once in a while, and you know, forget about the world. And then maybe I have, and then I, and then I think about what would happen if I deny myself don't have a beard eater, be fully switched on all the time. And then I think we end up where I think the book says we would end up is like absolutely destroyed and miserable. Does satire resolve this tension ambiguity? It doesn't. I think this is something that we all have to live with in our lives. I just think that satire is a, is a, is a tool that can help us negotiate that tension. I think it's really different from other kinds of entertainment. Because it is also critique. Like you could just watch, you know, go to you no know, stand-up comedy show, have a great time, you know, stand-up comedy show that's not political, that's not satire. That I think it has been, you know, I, I I wouldn't be saying that, but you know, if you wanted to make the argument about, oh, this is going to just distract you from it, well, you know, something like that is just going to distract you from it, right? Satire doesn't do that. Satire brings in the difficult. So it's dealing with it collectively critic scholars and and all people really interested in and care about satire have maybe overstated its political impact as a reaction to skepticism and you know if you study satire or comedy like oh it's just satire it's just comedy so i feel like this kind of discourses where maybe you know, satirists themselves critics they've may overstated i think you know if the book could make a contribution to maybe changing some of that discourse so that we get our expectations about satire right i mean that would of course be um, amazing i don't think that's going to necessarily going to happen but i think if it could make a small contribution to it that would be good i mean I'm, 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 this has been really great that you've had me to talk about my book because you write a book and then you don't even know if anybody's going to read it and then if anybody reads it you think like oh, i'll just they kind of hate it right uh, so it's been extremely pleasurable and rewarding to talk with you about these ideas and hear that you know you've also found some points of connection with some of the ideas.
0: Well, I really enjoyed talking to Dieter did you?
1: I did I mean what an interesting what an interesting book what an interesting fella I mean that was we covered a lot didn't we So, if people would like to follow Dieter's work I mean you can buy his book um, that you can just Google the name of the book and you'll find it available from lots of retailers. We've ordered a copy, well, we ordered a copy for our university library, didn't we? Um mm-hmm. so you can find that. You can also follow Dieter on social media at Dieter underscore de Klerk. So that's D I E T E R underscore D E C L E R C Q. Very good. Good spelling.
0: Yeah. So anything else we need to talk about before we wrap up this episode?
1: No, I think there's a lot to chew on in this episode, isn't there? So it'd be nice to yeah
0: Nice to
1: let the lovely listeners let all of that sink in yeah yeah but if people want to follow us or find out more about what we're doing or get in touch to let us know how this podcast this episode and other episodes may have affected them what can they do
0: uh just don't worry about it (laughs) just bottle bottle those feelings up uh yeah get on with your life
1: I mean, there's a thing that they could do that I'd like to say, because li- I listen to a lot of podcasts. We both do, don't we? And they usually end like this. Oh, oh, please give me some money on Patreon. Oh, I need your pennies. Please give me your pennies on Patreon to live. We don't need that. We're not asking that of you. We don't want your pennies. Um, we don't need them. What we need is impact evidence. So. If you feel like this podcast has informed you or affected you in any way, even just in the process of entertaining you or making you feel a little bit differently, it's really important that you let us know. So you can find us on Twitter, give us a tweet at, at satire no more. You can find us on Instagram by liking our posts at,
0: at TalkAboutSatire.
1: Or you can send us an email at
0: SatireNomore at gmail.com.
1: And that's all you need to do. In fact, you don't, you don't need to do that. But you could also yeah. rate reviewers on your platform of choice. Yeah.
0: Platform five for the rate and review calling at Spotify. I Apple Podcasts. Yeah, no. Well, Um. hopefully next time we talk, things will be things will be looking better. The sun will come out tomorrow. Yes. we to hang out until tomorrow, come what may.
1: Yeah, and we don't know what the next episode is going to be about, but the episode after that is most likely going to be about Cards Against Humanity, isn't it? Which is something to look forward to. Oh, boring. yeah. Yeah. Goodbye, listeners.
0: Yes. Goodbye. Sit up. Shut
1: up. And
0: eat eight
1: eight our eight, right? satire. Satire. Eat our satire.
0: Satire. Bye. Bye. Bye.
1: Yeah.